Hello, and welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound Outside's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series, currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti. My co-host is Kate Kolzik, TV editor at soundonsite.org and writer at theavclub.com. And our guest this week uh, is also from Sound On Sight, in addition to being staff writer at tvovermind.com and just general TV and game critic. Uh, Geeks Unleashed is also the, the editor and founder of Process Media and the co-host of the Mid-Season Replacements podcast, Randy Dankovich. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for such a generous introduction. I'm flattered. We like to pamper our guests before we eat them. I can accept that. There isn't much eating going on in this week's episode, season three, episode nine, and the woman closed with the sun, but there's plenty that we're going to be talking about. But before we get into that, a couple of housekeeping things up at the top. If you'd like to get in contact with us, feel free to do so via email at thisisourdesign666 at gmail.com, or hit us up on Twitter or leave a comment uh, on this post when it goes up at soundonsite.org. You can also, of course, leave a rating at iTunes if you haven't done so already. We greatly appreciate that. Uh, And as was mentioned last week, our appreciation extends so far as to offer you free stuff. And this week, we're happy to announce that the winner of the free copy of The Art of Making Hannibal is Alina. So congratulations to you. Uh, We'll get in contact with you soon about how to send that book. Uh, but as mentioned, we'll be talking about this episode written by Jeff Vlaming, Helen Shang, Steve Lightfoot, and Brian Fuller, and directed by John Dahl. And just to start things off, here are your highlights uh, of Hannibal by the Numbers for And the Woman Clothed with the Sun. The episode features 387 lines, which is the most of any episode uh, from this season thus far. The top three are Hannibal, Will, and Reba. Uh, Reba's at 47, Will's at 57 lines. And Hannibal just dominates the entire episode at 131 lines. There's 20 total scenes, the longest of which uh, I considered it one scene because there were short jumps in time, but it just felt like one extended scene, which was uh, Dollarhide and Reba first outside at the bus stop and then the ride home and, and talking uh, at her house at 5 minutes and 8 seconds. Uh, the shortest scene is only 11 seconds, which is Freddie Lowndes shooting Will outside of uh, the state hospital. So with all that in mind, we'll go ahead and kick things off, and somewhat related to Hannibal by the numbers, um, I was noticing this as I was tallying up everything, that much like uh, some of the older episodes of Hannibal from especially the first season, this episode heavily features just two characters speaking with one another, um, which falls in line with some of the other ways that we've been noticing how these first two episodes have felt like the, the quote, older, unquote, version of Hannibal, Uh, as opposed to the more, I guess, experimental one that we got with the first seven episodes of this season. Uh, So, Randy, I wanted to kick things off there and maybe talk a little bit about what having two characters speaking with one another um, does for a story that might be different from some of the more ensemble-style things that we have gotten in the past or a lot of other shows employ, especially sitcoms and stuff like that. But, But in this case, what's... How is Hannibal different when it's just two characters talking to one another versus something else, and, and why might that be um, the focus here in this episode? Well, I think there's there's two distinct reasons why they've kind of whittled things down to you know one person talking to another person. The first one's just structural. You know, they have a lot of they've done it at the beginning of the season with these time jumps, and again now with 
you know, before last week's episode, they need to get a lot of information out. And the easiest way to do that is if you have one person telling another person what has happened. So, you know, just a macro writing sense, that's how, that's why that's there. But I think more importantly for the characters, this is a stage where everybody in their own way is kind of entering therapy again. You know, old relationships are being brought up, old feelings and styles are being brought up. Will's getting back into a mindset he never wanted to get into. So it's, this episode is a, really about reestablishing old, familiar relationships between doctor and patient, except viewing them through this warped prism of what this world has become. So I think it's very much in line with creating this emotional aura around everything that everybody's still, it's been three years, but people haven't really, they haven't been around each other, so they haven't really processed what's happened to them. So now that people are getting back to the people that know and understand them, you know, we're starting to expand on that again. And I think, you know, there's obviously other things. So I think those are the two big reasons why. And the other thing that stood out to me when you talk about uh, only having two people in conversation, for me, what was different about that is that, you know, when we look at the previous week's episode, there was so much dialogue free. Uh, there's so much uh, of just one character at a, at a scene. So whether Will is at the, the Leeds crime scene by himself or everything we got with Francis Dollarhide last week, uh, again, by himself. So this is an episode full of two people talking, with the exception of Freddie um, taking pictures of Will. Um, we get, you know, Will and his nightmare. We get Francis with, the, you know, envisioning his tail. And we get a little bit of time with Francis and Will by themselves. But for the most part, and that's why Hannibal has the most lines, because he's speaking with lots of different people in this episode. He talks with Will and Alana and Jack uh, and Abigail. And so it only makes sense that he has the most dialogue by a long shot. Um, so, so for me, this is, it was a very talky episode uh, compared to a lot more visual storytelling we've gotten earlier in the season. Yeah, and I think the point of comparison to last week's episode really highlights that, that yeah, it, it seems to be the case, and I don't really think that this is a difference, a purposeful difference between writers and directors who do different things based on their talents for this series, but it seems like what Brian Fuller has designed overall is that we get episodes going back and forth between these things. So you might have a very dialogue-free episode that is more about what's just being um, visualized on screen, and then we kind of have to catch up with some certain stories, which is why, of course, we didn't get dialogue with Dollarhide last episode, and we finally do get it in this episode, uh, episodes that feature discussion really heavily. And I agree, Randy, that it also brings in that idea of therapy that even without the fact of Hannibal visualizing his office and putting him and Will there, I guess both characters are doing that at the same time, even without that, it still feels like uh, a character who is on a higher level of power, and I'm not sure how I would define that power just yet, talking to somebody who is a little bit more hesitant. Because um, also going through Hannibal by the numbers and looking at it, I noticed that with Will and Dollarhide, uh, in every scene in which they feature, they have the fewest lines of dialogue of any character in those scenes. So that was an interesting point where, obviously, with Will's interactions with Hannibal, it just feels like Hannibal um, has control, I guess. Maybe that's the way that I would define that power. And it, and it does also feel like Reba, in her conversation with Dollarhide, 
has a certain amount of control as well. I fully expect Will to speak less and less as the season goes on. I think that's in those that dialogue distinction between the two is important because for the first time in years, Will is trying to adopt the mindset of another person, another dark person. You know, we saw how hard it was for him to control that in the past, and it's not surprising that it's almost immediately changing him into a quieter person in this episode. You know, it's something I noticed throughout that he talked, even when he was around Hannibal, he talked less than in their previous interactions with each other. It's in, it's not so much contemplation as Will getting lost in his thoughts and, and his memories of what happened before. And, um, I think this episode does a great job drawing that out between the two. The less they talk, the easier it is to compare the two of them. Well, and I think also it's Will doesn't want to open himself up to Hannibal. He doesn't want to f- to feed him, as it were. And it, the more he talks to Hannibal, the more he tells Hannibal about himself and his family and uh, and where he's at. So better to say nothing than to, to let the wrong thing slip. So I think he's also being very careful in a way that he wasn't, say, in season one, before he knew who Hannibal was. And that's where I really see that hesitancy coming out with Will, is because how quickly and how thoroughly Hannibal analyzes him, not just the smell that he's able to make the connections that there's a child involved, but then to go further into the position of therapist or psychoanalyst and talk about reasons why Will might find a family that's already built so that he doesn't have to worry about passing on the traits in him that he fears passing on, that that, that was something that was really striking about that relationship in these scenes. That um, Again, it was a power and hesitancy, I think. And if you want to be on the nose, you can just return to our favorite beat of observation and participation. So Will is observing rather than trying to fully engage Hannibal. And I actually, I really appreciated that in the, their first interaction, the way he doesn't engage, the way he doesn't rise to the bait, because Hannibal spends uh, a chunk of that conversation, and it happens later with Jack, trying to goad um, a reaction out of out of Will or out of Jack, and neither one of them is having it. And I, you know, I, I really liked when Will's like, okay, this is disappointing. And when you're actually going to be serious, I'll come back. So I liked that, um, that, that Hannibal's old tricks are not as effective. Like over time, they're less and less effective as both Will and Jack, uh, are more aware of him. It speaks to Hannibal's boredom too. It really, the, how bored he's become in prison is really effective when you see how desperately, you know, especially with Jack, when he makes that comment about Bella, that's so desperate and low of Hannibal and inelegant in a way that I don't expect him to be. And moments like that really speak to, I think, he's rustling behind bars as he's sitting there. His mind isn't as occupied as he wants it to be. That's why he keeps creating these lavish places for him to go in his mind when he's having conversations with people, you know, these ornate buildings or, you know, his mind palace or what have you. He's He's bored for the first time in a long time, and I don't think he really knows how to handle that. Well, and he's out of practice, too. It's not just Will. Right. Uh, we definitely see that. And part of that has to do, of course, with Alana's power over him as well. I think that that's the only scene in which somebody has more lines uh, than Hannibal when they're interacting is when she's speaking to him. Um, but that boredom, I think, really comes through, which 
kind of relates to something else that I want to talk about, uh, the inclusion of the, the Abigail Hobbs stuff here. Because I don't think that it's just happenstance or that this is just filling in blanks that could be filled at some point. I think it makes sense here, and we could talk about that as well. But on another level, I also think that that relates to Hannibal's boredom, as you were saying, Randy, because he we need to get something with him if he's going to still be part of an integral an integral part of the series and it's it's interesting that this is what we get at this point that what's going on in his mind um he mentions to will in the scene that you were talking about just now kate where i i gave you a daughter if you or i gave you a child if you recall i think was the line uh, and will of course just ignores it completely but abigail's on his mind and that's the stuff that we're getting with him um so kate i was wondering if you saw maybe connections that were important there or if there was something else that you felt like it made sense that uh, Abigail would be a part of the story right now. Actually, you're a lot kinder to those scenes than I am, it sounds like, because I did not see a reason that we needed to have them other than, as you say, they want Hannibal to be one of the main characters. They need something for him to do. And I like the scenes. I think they're well done. I, you know, I, we fill in some, I didn't need to fill in any of these gaps at all, but I have a better sense of her relationship to her father and to Hannibal now, which I guess is cool. But I feel like everything that we get from that, that connection to family, that connection uh, to Will and these different, you know, significant moments that had been off screen. um, I, I feel like we knew all of this. We knew as much as we needed to. So it's great to have Garrett Jacob Hobbs back. And just for a moment, what is it like to be that actor? <laughs> you know, like, hey, <laughs> so we're going to put you in dead makeup and we're going to have embalming fluid come out of your neck and it's going to be incredibly disgusting. Just just sit there. Just be dead. Um, but that was a very effective scene. But as soon as he says, I gave you a, a child too, that's all I need. I don't need these scenes with Abigail. And so especially because there are only, you know, so many episodes left this season, knock on wooden things that we get some more some other time. Um, it's I, I just was getting antsy for for the other storylines. I don't need equal time with Hannibal. What about you guys? I, I think there's a there's a few things. Um, I'm trying to figure out which one I want to start with. Um, I the scenes I whenever I approach whenever I have the question why is this scene in here which being Hannibal and being how Archie can be happens often um, I had the same question why are we seeing these scenes with Abigail you know I'm thinking back to the the storyline in late season one and what's unseen in season two is you know along with Will Hannibal was also training um, Abigail to be you know one of his heirs he was trying to you know he this we see in this scene his whole idea of you know rebirth her dying and being rebirthed as this new creature that he can sculpt the way he wants to in this world. Effectively, he adopted her as well. And if the conversation at the end of the episode suggests anything, um, without spoiling too much about what happens in, in the book, in the book, cause you know, I don't know how they can do this on the show. You know, this is a parallel that they're drawing between Francis Dollarhide and Abigail, how Hannibal adopts somebody and teaches them the ways and gets symbolic with them. You know, we already see Francis as a person that's obsessed with symbology. So it's something that Hannibal can connect to. Um, I had another point to go with that. I don't remember what it was, but I think that, that it's there for a reason. I don't think it's just there to fill space necessarily. I think thematically it makes sense for shaping the story that's to come. 
Well, and I hope that we're going to get more in the next couple episodes that will recontextualize it. And that's something I wrote in my review at Soundside as well. So it's it's possible there's more coming that will add substance to to that, these scenes. But as for me, um, if you look at the this episode as just a piece, like for this episode, I didn't need it. Um, but yeah, I think that that relationship... It's very. We will get a parallel um, with with Abigail and with Francis moving forward. I would be very surprised if we didn't. Uh, Sean, what do you, what do you think about all this? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. It's going to seem underdeveloped right now. It's also going to seem maybe a bit exaggerated just because of how much more fully formed Dollarhide is as a potential puppet or serial killer than Abigail seemingly ever would have become. I don't really know how much confidence I, I would have had in her ability to even be like somebody like Randall Tier, But I think that that is being drawn, and maybe in the sense that Abigail was a failure for Hannibal and that Dollarhide could end up being a success. And that that failure, I think, is important, especially because Alana kind of rubs it into Hannibal's face, this idea of indignity. The the places where we get Abigail in this episode, the, the scenes that they immediately follow, I think, kind of highlight a little bit of that importance. You know, in the very first two scenes, it's Hannibal and Will. Hannibal says that about uh, giving him a child, and then we get more uh, of Hannibal and Abigail. Then later, it's right after Alana talks to him and mentions that indignity. And then finally, it's Jack and Hannibal. And then that goes into the flashback to Mizumuno, of course, you know, moments before Jack would show up and that they would fight. Um, all huge integral parts of Hannibal's failure, ultimately, and, and that's something that he's definitely got to be thinking about at this point. I also, um, the other thing I was going to say before I've forgotten about, the scene with Abigail and her father is kind of a fun nod to something that happens near the end of Hannibal the book. One of my favorite things this season has been how they've teased about the silliest things that happen in the book, like uh, when they're sitting at the table with Mason a couple weeks ago and they mentioned him, oh, I'll torment a kid's hospital and drink tears, martini tears, that actually happens in Hannibal the book, and you know the show made light of it and pushed it aside as a joke. And this scene is doesn't take it as much of a joke, but there's a scene near the end of Hannibal where Clarice gets drugged when she's healing after the the muskrat farm incident, and um, Hannibal brings her dead father to her for them to have a conversation together. So I think that was also kind of one last nod to the psychotic nature of Hannibal the novel on the way out into Red Dragon. So this is just like a bunch of recontextualizing in this episode. This, that's... this whole season's been a lot of recontextualizing of Hannibal material. It's been very interesting. I mean, not not even just the material, but I mean, um, even just within the series or within this episode itself, I think recontextualizing is a big part of that. And to me, it's actually the, the absolutely most beautiful part of this episode is seeing uh, what's going on inside the characters' heads. Uh, and this is mostly in the Will and Hannibal scene, in which they're going over the evidence, and then later in the Will and Molly scene, uh, when they're in bed next to each other, even though they're not in bed next to each other. That that process, I think, is incredibly effective, and I kind of didn't expect it to be. It, it seems really simple, but it just makes me feel really comfortable as a viewer. 
I loved the editing in this episode. I thought it was so well constructed. Um, the way that they continue, like they have to match all these camera movements between locations, whether they're inside the Leeds house and going from room to room, and then they're outside and then they're back inside, or that conversation with Molly, like you say, Will. Um, there's so much of that throughout this episode, and, and the ease moving from space to space and the trust of the audience, which at this point in Hannibal, it's something that they're not even. I would I would be very surprised if they were concerned about it at all because you know the people who are going to be off put by that are not watching in season three um but again i like the 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 editing of this episode the direction from from john Dahl, um the way that like like in that alana and and hannibal scene i love his use of focus that alana just like throughout the almost entire scene is blurry in the background and the the focus is sharply with Hannibal until when she moves forward and basically when Hannibal's listening to her, she's in focus and the rest of the time she's not because he's not even necessarily hearing what she's saying. Um, and I, you know, I, I just, again, I really like the way that this show lets directors have a distinct, I assume it's distinct. Maybe this is all in the script, but it seems like they let bring in these different directors. And when we get a Natalie episode, we know what it's going to have. Last week, we got a very different feel. This week, we get like these these cutouts of, of Hannibal and Will as the rest of the background goes to black. And I wrote this in my review at Sound of Sight. It made me think of paper dolls against backdrops um, and, and, and serial killer cutouts and these different directors are able to come into the show so stylized and so distinct as Hannibal, but give it their own spin and give their own stamp on it. And I just, I love the space that this show gives them. I thought it was really well done. There's a, uh, another huge part of this episode. I, I really like that comparison to, to dolls as well. And uh, I want to talk about the different ways that we see things in this episode visually, but, just a little bit before that, we were talking last week about Dollar Hyde, the dialogue-less scenes that we had with him. I think it might be good just uh, at this point to kind of talk about what we get of him as a character, because now we have seen him speak, uh, now we have seen him interact with somebody else, and here's the chance, I guess, for the writers to, to take a stand on where they're going to try to take the character, um, because like we said last week, there's a bunch of different ways that that could go, whether that's trying to humanize uh, a certain type of character, whether that's just displaying them as they are, or something perhaps different or more interesting than that. Randy, you're obviously familiar with the material, but what do you think of this version uh, of Francis Dollarhide here, based on, I guess, what we hear him say and how we see how we see him act with somebody else on screen? I mean, so far, so good. We don't have... It's a very specific character, and it's it's a serial killer character. You know, it's it's less about the for me it's less about the quirks that he can bring to the performance than just how he channels the insanity of what's going to happen around him almost like in a way the tooth fairy himself isn't the most interesting thematic character it's about what he means to everybody else around him that's interesting so i don't know i guess when i've seen his scenes i haven't so far i haven't really try to interpret them whether they're effective or not. I'm just kind of have let myself be along for the ride to see where it goes. But, you know, any actor that can come into such a iconic role and show restraint should be lauded. And so I guess we can be, I can be happy about that to this point. I, I'd say that makes me sound like I'm disappointed and I'm not. It's just, there's, 
It's a very quiet role to this point. It's one that begins in this episode with a memory of being at the table with what we assume is family. Uh, oh, there's people. a story there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's how we see him as the child, and then the camera pans up and we see the man. Was there anything different this time around than last week, uh, Kate, that jumped out to you about kind of how he conducts himself? Well, I just seeing him interact with other people kind of confirms what you could kind of assume from the previous episode. It was so fun because when I watched this episode with my sister, uh, whenever they show him at work or at lunch or whatever he's doing when he's reading, <laughs> you're just imagining the people at all the other lunch tables being like, oh, dude, Francis is looking at his hands again. What the hell's going on with that guy? Like, it's hard to think of what he, like, what he's like outside of his own bubble of perception. Um, so, I, I was, you know, what what he seems like to other people. So I, that's why I think bringing Reba in, I, I was glad they brought her in so prominently in this episode. And um, so early in the arc, I'm glad they didn't wait at all with that. I don't know why they would, but I'm glad they didn't um, because we get, we get a lot more about him from how she sees him than I think how the show portrays him. And I think that's, what's interesting about those scenes in regards to, to him. There's plenty of interesting things in regards to her, but, um, but yeah, so, so, I think I find those scenes incredibly ominous because of the dramatic irony and also because of the scoring. And, um, and, and so it's hard to engage in, and it's hard for me to see what she sees in dollar hide, uh, because I'm spending so much of my energy going, pull your hand back from his mouth <laughs> that it's hard for me to see what she sees. But when she says, you know why she likes him why she is happy to get a ride from him and and you know share some pie and just kind of talk a little bit in her house i believe her there's a sincerity to that and um and and a uh, a frankness in Regina Wesley's delivery that kind of tells me maybe more and distinguishes what she sees from what the series what from what dollarhide sees in himself and what this the series has been showing us so far I was just going to say I really like the casting um, for Reba's character because she's really important to the persona of Francis Dollarhide outside the Tooth Fairy and the struggle that he has mentally between those two personas. And for a character that is that we have to be able to view as believable and in being interested in him and still not just someone that comes across as saccharine and pointless, I think as an introduction to her as a person in this episode, it's done really, really well. The, uh, the ominous feeling, I think, is there. I agree that uh, when you get a line of dialogue like, you know, come ride with me for my pleasure, or the way that Armitage delivers, um, you know, trust me, I'm smiling, including the scoring as well during those moments, it does feel quite ominous. And yet we can't help but see it from her perspective that it is also rather sweet. And so I, I think it presents a really difficult situation for viewers who... Uh, are first introduced to Dollarhide as the Tooth Fairy, and we see the horrendous killings that have taken place. It puts more of an emphasis, I think, on this idea of uh, possession or dual personality, his struggle, and the torture, I guess, of being and becoming the Great Red Dragon, as we hear him tell Hannibal at the end of the episode. Still, though, I I worry like how believable that is, and maybe that's why a character like Reba is so important um, to get her perspective and to be reminded that uh, an outsider like her 
could have this genuine and legitimate connection with this person and that the person that she's seen is just so very different from who he is at other times. Uh, and yet, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, that might just be a problem with like the, the story of Red Dragon in general is that it's it's so difficult to get on board. Yet at the same time, I, I'll freely admit to being sympathetic to this Hannibal Lecter, so I, I guess I'm a hypocrite. Well, well there's just for... not a lot of time to do this either. We have to get... Their relationship has to get going quickly. So there's not a lot of time to build that bridge between the audience and the characters. Either you believe in it or you you go with it or you just don't because there's no time to sit and contemplate it, really. Um, and that's why, like you say, Randy, the casting is so important and the performance that we get from Wesley. And um, <laughs> there's there's no more indicative line for me in this episode that highlight highlighting her, her perception of a scene versus my perception of a scene as a viewer than when she says, Oh, don't worry about me. I'm not worried <laughs> for her. Oh, here's this guy who thinks, who knows that she can completely handle handle herself. Like, I feel like she's hearing, Oh, I'm not worried about you. You'll be fine. Whereas I'm hearing, Oh, I'm not worried. I'm going to end up killing you or something. <laughs> it's like such a different perception, but I, Again, and like we've been saying, the the performance from Wesley, the 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 writing for her, and even just the way it's it's shot and she's costumed and stuff, you, I can believe what she is seeing, um, like I said earlier, as well as you know what I'm seeing and what those of us who have seen the blood drenched Dollar Hyde are seeing. We hone in on that line of dialogue that he says about him not being worried, and we understand what that means to us, but. Based on the character she is, and to reiterate a point from earlier, that uh, in their scenes together, she's the one who dominates the discussion. And of course, a lot of that has to do with his his speech and how he's very self-conscious of that. But I also feel like he he does mirror Will a lot in this episode in how quiet and controlled they are and how contemplative. But are are you at all worried for Reba in their scenes together, Randy? Or is Dollarhide in, in their interactions much different from the other things that we see him, like when he's alone watching the film? I don't think I should answer this question because I know too much. We know too much. Um, I know well, you, too much. You can detach yourself I mean, from that, though. Like, in the context, a, if I'm trying to detach myself, if I'm just strictly trying to exist in the, this context of Hannibal, I mean, of course you're going to feel worried because it's designed for you to feel worried. But I th- also think that there's a duality to that that, doesn't really quite come across in this episode. I think they're starting to build it in this episode, but I think that it's another, we need another hour or two, which is hard to say when there's only four left. Um, we need a little bit more time for them to build this out a little bit more for that to be kind of a two-sided argument. Right now, it's it's pretty obvious in that one scene, the way it's lit, the way it's shot, the way the dialogue's delivered, that it's, it's very much supposed to be kind of a visual warning of sorts, but I don't want to say I'm as worried as the scene wants us to be. I think that the series, this series has done a good job of, even in cases where characters could potentially be in conflict, that the way that things are shot or the way that the, the soundtrack or score comes in, that it kind of helps alleviate that. Back when we saw Hannibal and Will finally reunite uh, in front of La Primavera, I think it was the inclusion of the, the Goldberg Variations that really made that feel comfortable. And I think here, the the shooting of uh, her motion over the pie, it's a, a very similar to things that we've seen Hannibal Lecter do in the series, of course. But 
like the scene with Will and Hannibal, where these are characters who probably want to kill each other. In this scene, it's a predator and very easy prey, and yet some of those aesthetic touches, I think, make it work so that I, I don't really feel worried for her at all. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, you gotta love the bright red cherry pie with stars instead of a full crust so we can see lots of the filling. Um, yeah. It, it, th- Come on. Couldn't be any more subtle. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just having... You know, she invites him in for, for some coffee and a slice of pie, and it's it's so warm. Um, and, you know, it makes you like her even more. And the way that Francis hesitates before coming into, like, crossing the threshold, also, despite everything else we know about him and everything that the, the lighting and the scoring is telling us, that shows a level of restraint and of, of deference. Um that uh, he's taking care around her because he doesn't want to hurt her. I like that's what I took from that pause before going over the threshold. Um, and so I think I can see why. I mean, I was stressed out, super stressed out the whole time. But I could see maybe why you weren't, right, uh, Sean. Uh, her position, I think, also brings up interesting points that you know are specific to Thomas Harris, of course, but also to this series, which I think has taken the idea of sight uh, even further. Seen this idea that Reba is blind, of course, and that the, in Thomas Harris's work, uh, you know, we're supposed to be reading and thinking about uh, perception and how somebody who can't see, it's that cliche of being able to see better than somebody who actually can. And again, I think that's recontextualized here to fit Brian Fuller's uh, fascination with that process that the minute characters can see, something changes. And so Will is a character who can see through the perspective of other serial killers. There are a lot of characters who can't quite see. I think uh, for most of the series, they kind of blinded Alana purposely um, to use as a point of comparison, I think, often. Uh, but that that's always been a huge part of this series. And I mean, we talked about this before, Kate, but do you think that there's more added to that with Reba, that this idea of a character who can see versus somebody who doesn't is maybe in a better position, or does that just make them more vulnerable to characters like Dollar Hyde, or maybe to Hannibal Lecter, like Will was vulnerable to him? Yeah, I think what this, you know, what she says here is very important. She says that, you know, I listen, and a lot of people don't listen. Um, And so she is very aware in a way that a lot of the other characters wouldn't be. And so, you know, I, like, we love the lab tech guys, but when they're not doing their work, they don't seem like they're necessarily the most perceptive, you know. Like, if they were, I don't know if they would notice uh, Creepy Francis at, at work um, outside of Creepy Francis is creepy. Um, so, so I think they do a good job here connecting her in with um, with these other, these more perceptive characters, or even, you know, Bedelia back when she, you know, in season two, when she says, I believe you to Will, like she can see Will, she understands Hannibal, she can see better than most what Hannibal is, um, partially because he's opened up to her, but also because she's looking and, you know, and like, like Reba says, a lot of people don't listen. So Alana chose not to pay attention. Reba here is choosing to engage. And so I think, connecting that idea it's not necessarily that these people have super abilities like you know the magical empathy disorder that lets you you know be will graham 
um, it's it's more about choosing to actively engage with their world, and um, yeah, and, and then or even like something like Beverly choosing to take a second look and 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 uh, and seeing so much more when she's interacting with Will and in the beginning of season two than either of her colleagues did, and eventually that leading to her death. Um, not at all ominous for Eva, guys. Not at all. <laughs> Anyways, that's, that's I guess, how I'd respond. Is that too on the nose, Randy, to include something like that in this story? I know it's adapted from the source material, but is that just so obvious that it becomes too cliché? No, because I think if anybody on television understands how to deliver something simple with elegance, it's fuller, and I think... I, you know, we don't have to have her character necessarily come out and explain that, oh, I have a really good sense of smell, and oh, I hear a lot of things with my ears and stuff. It's not, it it lets us infer these things, which is all it should do. If you're going to do that, go into it understanding that the audience is going to get the metaphor right away, okay? We get it, okay? We understand it. And so now the, the job is not going from that point A to point B, it's going from the emotional point A to point B. And I think that's the important thing in this episode that they do. They get her from him being this stranger to him being an entity that she trusts. I think they do that really well. I agree. And I feel like when characters are developed to the point where they do reach this this ability to see that whether they know it or not, uh, it's playing with fire and it it ends differently, I think. But I do think it's like an ominous step in their development. With Beverly, it was very quickly she understood, and then that led to her eventual death. And with Reba, as you both have been saying, it's it's how the character chooses to act uh, with that information. So if she engages Dollarhide, again, whether she knows it or not, she is playing with some amount of fire, and, and that kind of dictates the story. And Will has done that countless times in the past. But yeah, I think it's just another another fascinating development on that idea. And I like that, that Fuller's able to bring it out so fully uh, with this material. Um, another question that I had was in relation to, to Will. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot, actually. Because it feels like when Hannibal says to Will... Uh, and he's talking about Dollarhide in this case. Like you, Will, he needs a family to escape what's inside him. It feels like what our gut reaction to that as the audience is supposed to be is that, no, 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 like, based on the interactions that we've seen with Will and Molly, that there's no form of escapism there, that that feels like a very natural fit. But I've been thinking and wondering, just because of how fully Hannibal Lecter really does understand Will Graham, that I don't know if I necessarily disagree with his analysis. And maybe it's just that this was a form of escapism for Will to try and form that kind of family unit, and just coincidentally it ended up working out perfectly for him, and maybe it's not that thing anymore. But what was your reaction to that analysis, Randy? Well, I think Hannibal sums it up very well when he, you know, he points out, you know, you went and got a son because you were afraid to have one yourself. I mean, when it really gets down to it, Will doesn't think he can live a normal life. And yet somehow he was able to find one. And Hannibal kind of revels in the fact that he could take it away from him without even having to do anything. He's sitting in prison. Somebody else is killing people. And yet here Will is looking at Hannibal removed from the life that he had built from himself. 
and picked it and had that he had spent three years building and Hannibal picks apart in about 10 seconds. I, I really thought, think of this as it was reminiscent to me of the conversation with Chio where Will keeps, you know, like, Oh, did you relive the murder over and over? And she's like, no, dude, you're trying way too hard to make us be the same person. And that's how I felt about that. This interaction, uh, this, this notion of Will, seeking out a family unit for himself like he ended up finding that and and maybe there are other um romantic interests that could have presented themselves over the past three years that he would have not let in that he doesn't know why he let molly in but things worked out great i don't think there's anywhere near the level of of purpose and uh I guess craft to to it that Hannibal implies here, and and even just sub you know subconsciously. So I, I, this really to me felt like Will uh, Hannibal trying to reassert this. Oh, we're the same, you know. Just like I found Abigail and made her kind of be like my daughter, you found this tidally convenient because that really undermines the strength of the bond between Will and Molly. And if it was just that then we wouldn't get the beautifully warm scene that we get between Will and Molly. So yeah, she's got it. She's got a son. And uh, so he, there's a ready built family there, family, you know, nuclear family, but they have a real connection. And so just because th- there's the one thing that doesn't undermine um, the strength of the, the relationship, Will isn't with Molly because she has a son and it's convenient for him. She's he's with Molly because they share a really, um, strong connection. <laughs> she makes him laugh. When's the last time he genuinely laughed on this show? Uh, never. I mean, he likes to scoff sarcastically, but I'm having trouble thinking of a, a very many, more than maybe one or two genuine laughs from Will. It was wonderful to see. Well, for Hannibal, though, Hannibal's still bitter because essentially Molly is offers Will the family that... Hannibal offered him and he rejected, you know, Hannibal offered the plan was for Will and Hannibal to leave with Abigail and do whatever crazy shit they were going to do. You know, maybe Bedelia comes along as well. That never came to fruition. So we don't know, but you know, Hannibal wanted, you know, he even says, you know, Will, we are family. Like whether you want to accept it or not, we're your family, we're your real family. Like you have this other family here, but the family you always wanted and the family that keeps pulling you back in is this one right here. So I think it's almost him poking at him saying, Hey, you know what? You got a family, but, and you got a, you know, you had a kid that's not you, that you're not biologically responsible for, whose mistakes aren't yours. It's the same thing that I offered you three years ago. Yeah. And I just think Hannibal's, wrong when he says that the 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 family he offered is somehow truer or more um has more strongly tied or more 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 honest reflection of who will is um so i i think that's what hannibal believes or what hannibal wants to believe but i don't think he's correct and i also agree about it not undermining the connection that they share and yet um I'm kind of in the middle of the spectrum, I suppose, that I'm not convinced that Will would have not gone with another romantic interest 
and that I don't know if I'm even beginning to explain this right. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that that I still feel like Hannibal is right that Will would have been seeking that thing out, uh, not necessarily as like actively as it might be in Hannibal's head, um, but that the genuine connection with Molly is absolutely there, and I guess it was just lucky that those two things happened to occur at the same time. I think that that's my position on it. And I'm not saying that him and Molly don't have a connection to each other. I mean, she clearly understands who he is as a human being, and he is as open with her as he can possibly be. I just... I think that's what makes this whole storyline work and, and, and Hannibal's whole take a part of it work is that it is the same thing, but it's two sides of the same coin. This is, this is, he's living out one ending of that story. You know, had the end of season two turned out differently, they would have lived out a different ending of the same story in some fashion. How do you feel about being named after a dog? (laughs) No, no, cat. Uh, And apparently uh, named uh, after Brian Fuller's actual cat named Kate. Uh, who is alive. <laughs> so, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, yeah. I wasn't even referring to that. Wait a second. So I'm in a conversation right now with Kate and Randy, and there was a cat named Kate and a dog named Randy in this episode. Yep. What the hell? <laughs> it's Clearly it's kismet. Uh, no, that scene was pretty fun. Uh, and and I, again, it, it, I'm curious if you guys keyed into this as well, but to me it felt like a very another very meta nod to the audience. Uh, who are so much more invested in the the uh, well-being of the pets than they are the humans on this show. Uh, so, I, you know, I really like Jimmy's like, I care for cats. I do not have a connection with children. I thought Scott Thompson absolutely nailed that, as as did Aaron Abrams. It's such a small, uh, such a short scene. I, I also really liked that they brought back the, the line that seemed like it was kind of contrived to not kill the dog off that the dog had been was at the vet just happened to be at the vet i like that that actually turns out to be by design and not um a coincidence but um no it was nice to get a a little levity there and then the other scene that i also really appreciated for its warmth at least for part of it was uh, when we're talking about families i think i feel like we got to talk about alana and margo and their verger baby can we just talk about alana and what a wonderful transformation they gave her this season they just totally rebooted her from the from the way she looks to the way she talks to the way she behaves, and it's been a joy. We'll talk about it. What, what stood out to you? I think for me it's just, yeah, the stylizing of her wardrobe and her hair and the kind of positioning of her body, the way that she conducts herself. Well, I think it's this, beyond the stylizing of her look. It's the stylizing just of her character in general. She's just become so much more of a hardline human being than she used to be. She is, like when she goes into Hannibal's um prison cell and he's like oh you're just coming here to do some finger wagon she's like yeah damn right i love finger wagon like that is not something she would have said before like she revels in things now and she they've combined her with um you know in the book it's in the films it's chilton who's the head of the the prison that he gets locked in and they've kind of given her a few of his more playful qualities and just really used it to sharpen her as a character and it's made it it's made her so fantastic Oh, I disagree. Um, I love it. Well, I, I love it, but I I like the Alana we see last week and that we see at the beginning of this episode with Will. When she's in there later with with Hannibal and she's threatening him, that that is really stupid. <laughs> and that that feels like a level of 
of stupid and um, enjoying her power over Hannibal that I'm having trouble believing from someone as perceptive as Alana. I can buy that from Chilton because he's Chilton, but I don't believe like she I felt like she was like lifting her leg and peeing on him um, in that scene like cause, like there was a level of I guess she says cordiality and and respect to their interaction last week um and at the start of of the scene there was some of that but when she's like I know and when she's saying I know what you're doing with you're doing something and you should stop that I could accept when she starts like threatening him, like she, that she's going to demean him. She's just signing herself up for a gruesome death. Well, I think, you know, she's in a position where she thinks she can say that she, you know, Hannibal, as she pointed out to him in the last episode, he made a promise to kill her and she's still standing. And he is seemingly in a place that he'll never get out of. Like either she has fully accepted the fact that he's just going to kill her at some point and she's enjoying her time that she has left or she really thinks she she got one over on the devil. Yeah, that's the thing. I think she should know better than to think that he is for certain not going to get out. I don't know. That's where I'm at with it. It makes um, it more fun. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It is certainly fun. And um, like I said, I loved the way they shot that scene. When you talk about uh, her transformation... Love the lady suits, uh, lady suit watch. Fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. She looks amazing. Uh, totes amazing. It's it's our way to get new suits in the rotation. Seeing as Hannibal, you know, in his memory palace is theoretically going to be remembering suits we've seen. Um, but no, the 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 styling of that and the the confidence we see in her and like like you say, she's been through so much. It would make sense that she would come out the other side hardened. Because how could you possibly not with what she's been through? Um, but yeah, that just, I was just watching, I was disappointed in Alana in that scene um, because I expect her to, to know better than that. And so I, I'm not saying it's out of character. I'm not saying it's wrong. It was disappointing for me, I guess. Yeah. It's characteristic of what every, and it happens to anybody anytime they think they have power over Hannibal, though. Everybody tries to throw it in his face. That's just what you do when you think you have intellectual superiority over somebody. There's times where you can't control yourself. Hannibal does it all the time. He's just more elegant about it than the rest of us because he wears nice ties. <laughs> I think it also is maybe that idea of coming to terms with there might not be an escape for her. But yeah, the, also the push and pull of power with Hannibal's conversation with Jack, he Hannibal ends that um, mentioning the scars and how much more room does Will have on his face, kind of rubbing it into Jack's face, uh, and, and Jack doesn't have a response. He just walks away. That's his way of dealing with it. I think that that's an approach that Alana could take or that any character could take with Hannibal, but just because she is the one who holds all five keys to all five doors between him and the outside world, that maybe she feels like this could be one of the only ways of, I guess, exerting power and maybe earning some kind of respect. I don't know. Just to to be like, look, I can do whatever I want and you can't do anything about it. Maybe that's the kind of thing that Hannibal would appreciate, that push and pull, but probably not. I don't know. I think you might be onto something there. You know, she sees Will. She's seen Will and Jack for the first time in multiple years in the last couple of weeks. And in her head, she could just be going, you know, damn it, I thought all of this was finally 
over. You know, I thought this was done and people were going on, and here they are, and people want to talk to Hannibal again. It's like, all right, maybe I'll never get away from this guy ever, and I should just accept it. <laughs> well, that'll take us, of course, to our recurring segments for the podcast, beginning with Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring and soundtrack and, and the woman clothed with the sun? Well, there's one classical piece featured... I believe more on that in a little bit. And that's the Chopin prelude that we hear when uh, Will calls Hannibal to, to warn him. That's prelude uh, from the from his 24 preludes for piano, opus 28. This is number two, the Lento. Uh, it was previously used in Tomewan when Will was making uh, dog food. So Hannibal made that uh, fish, swimming fish dish for Jack. Um, set to, I want to say that was Mozart, and then we went s- straight into this Chopin for um, for Will making the dog food. So when he came back here, um, I immediately remembered, like, the, had the, the memory of, of hearing it on, on the show before. That was a little distracting for me, because uh, my first instinct was like, oh, is this, are they reusing the piece because it was used in the t- same episode back in, like, I don't know, the end of episode 12 or the beginning of episode 13 of that season. But uh, but no, it's just, it sounds pretty. And it fits very well tonally, the, the dark color of it and the the, the, the dissonance and in like the tritones and, and these other very dissonant intervals that that go on in the left hand as the right hand is this very simply, very lovely melody that gets made more uh, foreboding with the push and pull of the left hand there. Um, that... that is also layered over with some some percussion and some other instruments by Reitzel, but uh, that's the main classical piece featured in this episode. There's also the piano piece while uh, Francis is remembering that dinner, whatever that dinner was, um, and I I feel like that's got to be a classical piece as well, or at least in the style of a piece, but I was having, I couldn't identify it if it is, I mean, maybe it's an original composition. I don't know, but if it is a pre-existing piece, the way that they use it, where they you know, start out slowly, slowly, it's in a very clear three, one, two, three, one, it's almost like an umpapa, um, very dance-like feel. And then it speeds up a little bit. It feels almost ragtimey for a beat or two before for me, it settles into like a the range of a like an old timey silent movie score that it would be played live on an an older piano. Um, I I think the 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 sound of it, the the type of piano that they use for that, um, gives it a lot more flavor than just a traditional very beautiful sounding piano. It was more. Again, it had a bit more texture than that. Um, but yeah, that that really connected to me with the Dollar Hides. Um, use uh, like his his connection to film and and sound and and so having the the left hand or sorry the the piano scoring in that scene start out as very like traditional or old fashioned European kind of sound and then speed up a little bit and and end up feeling more like you know this is him scoring a memory as like like it was a silent film that that uh, really worked very well for me um, also throughout this episode. Um, couple of things I was noticing is the the very heavy um, layers and layers of percussion that we got for Dollar Hyde last week, along with the string section underneath it supporting that and, and um, flavoring that. We don't get that in the same way this episode. And that highlights the contrast between the dragon 
um, and and Dollarhide, or in my review, I, I kind of thought of them as Dollarhide versus Francis. So when Francis is talking with Reba, we get like more of a sound wall, like a for me a tension wall of of really uh, of of different ambient sounds and uh, and you know, like rolled percussion, um, as opposed to more aggressive uh, sounds throughout that scene. Um, when Dollarhead goes inside the house, it it gets very um, it's very, there's like a soft melody and a pitch to the percussion that gives it more structure maybe or more like a more more of a melodic element and I feel like that's for her for Reba as compared to um, to, to Dollarhide and when she talks about mentions the speech therapy thing and he gets more you know stresses out a little bit the scoring gets more intense and then when she says hey let's clear the air the the scoring again dissipates and we only really get that Dollarhide kind of percussion thing when she reaches up to touch his face and he grabs her hand we get more of the 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 more rhythmic percussion then so again the way that that Reitzel is using these different types of percussion to tell us different things about Dollarhide is has been very effective for me instead of having the strings underneath it in that those scenes we get the strings when uh, Will is looking at the home videos um, before we go over to to Dollarhide um, and, and that that really uh, worked very well for me. It was a lot warmer, and then eventually the percussion starts layering in as we transition from from Will to Dollarhide, looking at, at home videos. Um, so again, I thought that was very effective. We get piano, a very soft, um, melancholic piano when Will and Molly are talking with with a lot um, lots of space between the notes, lots of room to breathe because they're so comfortable speaking to each other there doesn't need to be music throughout we don't it's like the opposite of the tension music we get throughout the the reba and dollar hide scene um we get some energetic percussion percussive music for freddie because she's of course always very driven very focused very orderly in what she does um there is there's again more piano with with will and and when, when he's talking with hannibal but um, when he goes to talk with Alana, instead, it's a softer sound. It's a keyboard or an organ, as opposed to the percussive sound of, of the piano that has the decay with each note, which I thought was, was interesting. There's the, there's like a thunder sheet that they use right after Alana says, I'm not just worried about you. It's like roll of thunder. <laughs> and then last time it didn't end with you and she looks down. Um, so that was a fun little specific percussive touch uh, i like the um the the more violent strings especially the violins when um abigail uh slices open her father's neck i guess and all the super grody uh uh fluid comes out um and then the last thing i'll say i guess uh there's again there's there's more the when will's having his nightmare we get some of the most aggressive percussion we've heard for him in quite a long time when he wakes up it's just like it feels like someone smacking metal uh strings with with a wooden uh mallet or something like i thought of having smacking the strings of a bass with a bow i i don't know what they actually did for that or what rights did for that but it's very very aggressive and it's only been two weeks 
You know, he's only been back for like an episode and a half and he's already seeing himself chip apart in the mirror and he's already having these horrible nightmares waking up to this aggressive, angry, violent sound. This isn't the water of season one when he was like sweating through his sheets and having nightmares. This is a much more aggressive sound. Um, So I'm just, I'm worried about him. (laughs) I don't know how he's going to last six episodes of this. Um, there's more that you could say, and people can go over to Sound On Sight to read up my write-up of the scoring for this episode, but those are the things that uh, kind of come to mind today, talking about it. Yeah, uh, the upbeat music that Freddie got seems to be her theme song, because that's what's been used in the past in the first episode that we were introduced to her. I think it's episode two of season one. Uh, and then the only other thing that stood out to me was... Uh, when we get the flashback to what was happening during Mizumono with uh, Hannibal and Abigail, that the the water drops and the ticking were occurring there as well. Yep, the Mizumono theme comes back there. It, it's the same kind of sound that they used in Primavera when Will was remembering his conversation with Hannibal and, and the office. Um, yeah, and I love that we can just recognize that so instantly that the the score for Mizumono is still so affecting and memorable that we hear just a little clip of it and it's like yep that if we weren't sure that tells us where in the time frame this scene takes place uh, any uh soundtrack or score related comments randy absolutely not <laughs> you're also a music guy right i wouldn't call myself that on the same podcast as kate it would be disrespectful <laughs> Yet, listeners, yes, he is. (laughs) I am, but in a very different way. All right, well, we'll go ahead and move right along then into the devil in the details in which we uh, talk about the smaller things in the episode. Actually, not necessarily small, but also brings up uh, opportunities to talk about things that we haven't mentioned yet. And I'll just kick things off with the fact that Alana has whiskey in her office. And I know she's a beer woman, but uh, we definitely get the decanters of whiskey there, which I appreciated. It's almost like as she's become more hardened and has to deal with life after all of the horrific events that happened uh, in the last half season, she needs something a little bit harder to deal with the day-to-day. But, uh, Randy, any little things that stood out to you in the episode? Um, one of my favorite little details, it's a stupid detail in the, the novel of Silence of the Lambs, is uh, how the actual mechanism where Hannibal receives information works, the little box that they push back and forth, and I was just really nice to see them and have very distinct shots of him using that box multiple times in the episodes. You know, it's just one of those little nods in there, and I really enjoyed seeing it. Um, I really liked the lighting of Hannibal in the scene with uh, the opening scene with him and Will because he's lit from below. And so, the, and you can really notice that in that first scene, but also when he's on the phone with Dollarhide at the end, the the way the positioning of the light casts shadows up so you can't really see his eyebrows and it just gives him even more of this uh you know shark or 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 fishy kind of look that they've done in the past usually in the past he's been a little clammy looking as well certainly i can think of lots of scenes in season two with um with uh bedelia where they emphasize that like fish kind of dead eye thing um certainly uh shark like but it really for the, you can't see his eyebrows. The shadows are cast up. It makes his face look a little off-putting. But also, it for me was reminiscent of um, a, a sitting around a campfire, holding a you know holding the flashlight and the light from above, you know from below, casting shadows up while you tell ghost stories. <laughs> because I feel like talking to to Hannibal like at any time 
<laughs> is like telling a ghost story. So that was one of the details I liked. Uh, I have just four other little ones. Uh, one of them was when uh, Francis pulls up to Reba at the bus stop. There's an advertisement for a, a dentist. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> so that was fantastic. Uh, another one was just the way right before Hannibal uh, receives the, the file uh, through that little slot in the door the way that he walks in sync with Will, step for step, uh, in parallel, that that was really good, and, and that has happened in the, the other adaptations of the story. Um, other things before I, I keep going, Randy. Okay, I'm going to jump in really quick with, with the tooth, the, the dentist thing that you said. Like, in case anybody missed it, it's not just an ad for the dentist. It's a gaping maw with all of the teeth that says, open wide, say, ah. I mean, it's really creepy, especially because she's waiting to get picked up by a known biter, Francis Dollarhide. And then she's about to touch his face. I mean, like, it's super creepy. <laughs> uh, I also, the one... One thing I liked was they made Will's scar more prominent than it was in last week's episode. In last week's episode, was, he doesn't really have a scar much at all, and this week it's it's much redder and it's more prominent, and that just brings a parallels between him and Francis in just a nice, neat alignment. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I didn't even notice that. I'm going to have to look for it next week. That's, gr- that's a great note. Uh, I liked the reflection of the Wendigo in uh for hannibal in in the glass i thought that was a neat little touch especially when you realize they're in a mind palace for that so it's either will i'm not sure whose mind palace they're in frankly but it's one of their mind palaces and i'm guessing it's will's because he's seeing hannibal see himself as the wendigo so that was neat um i mean i feel like we gotta have a shout out to murder husbands just that's such a that's such a great line of dialogue and then um i guess the i mean molly Molly totally set Will up with that whole I'm feeling Randy thing. Like, no, I'm petting Randy. I'm going to go pick Randy up from the vet. You know, I'm getting Randy. I'm going to go get him from the vet. But I'm feeling Randy, meaning I'm pet. She totally set him up. And I, that's kind of made me like her all the more, which was delightful. And the last you know how many times I- I've heard that joke in my life? <laughs> <laughs> All of the times? The last thing I would have is I really love how they have turned one table, one table be it the one in Hannibal's memory palace, the one in the kitchen of his apartment, the one in his prison cell, and the one in in his office, and they can use them just to bleed him through to any of those locations at any point during any conversation. He can always be standing in front of a table. That one little visual detail makes it so easy for them to transition between these things, and it's it's really cool to see them do it. Absolutely. The last thing I have is um, the um, the the crime scene is so much bloodier this week, like so much bloodier. Because last week we cut away from the 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 crime before he started whatever was going to come next. After theoretically everyone was dead, but before he started working on them, um, and so when we cut back. And it's, like, after the fact, after everything's done, and they're, like, the the bed is drenched in blood, and there's these wings of blood, like, all through the, the curtains or whatever around the bed. It was really disturbing for me, even more so than what, when, than what we saw, because all we saw was her get shot, and obviously that's going to bleed, but we didn't really see her or that blood spreading last week. So when we cut back to it, it was, it was very... Uh, 
jarring and uh, disturbing, I thought. I think the difference there might have been because the leads uh, was the second killing, and what we're seeing is Mrs. Jacoby in that, that maybe he, like, got better at it uh, the second time around, where... There was less blood, but I'm not sure. Over oh, those different crime scenes, I thought they were the same. I that shows you what I'm noticing. I think we were in the Jacoby house this time. I think, right? Ready? I, I don't know. No clue. I don't. I don't remember offhand. Okay, it, it, it might be the case. If not, then then yeah, then that's certainly a difference. Uh, last two things that I had, uh, Kate, you mentioned in the Alana and Will scene, or Alana and Hannibal scene, um, how she's kind of blurred out at the at the back. I really loved how in the very first scene with Hannibal and Will. Um, that both of them are always on screen and also level with one another through the reflection and the glass, um, which is always just fantastic when the directors do that kind of thing. And finally, uh, during Hannibal's uh, conversation with Jack, when Jack mentions the fact that his note went to his offices first and was then forwarded, there was that little sting of, uh, of annoyance there. But I was also wondering, like, what was the point of Jack going to see Hannibal in that scene? I'm not sure. I need to think about it. Um, for me, the what I took away from that scene was that Hannibal seemed genuinely concerned for Will and upset with, Han- with, with Jack for pulling him back into things, which was surprising to me, and I thought a very neat character beat. But yeah, I'm not... I have to... I didn't. It didn't bother me at the time, so I don't know. What am I? Am I forgetting something, Randy? What? How do you feel about that? Well, maybe um, he's going in there because it's like it's a parallel to the first. You know, when Jack puts Will under Hannibal's direction, he assumes that Hannibal's going to take a certain responsibility and taking care for him. And I think this is the same thing here. He's coming to let him know, hey, you know, don't fuck him up. And Hannibal's like, hey, here, I'm going to like. You're an idiot. Like, obviously, like I'm waving two red flags here saying I am going to screw with him. I can buy that. All right. Well, uh, anything else that we haven't mentioned that, that either of you would like to talk about in anything in relation to this episode? Well, that that thing with uh, Jack was the last thing I, I had. And I'm cur- was curious what you guys thought about that. If, if, you re- if you believe Hannibal when he is expressing concern for for Will. I definitely do. Oh, always. But- but that's not to say that there aren't very dangerous things that accompany that. Like, it, I could totally see Hannibal always really caring deeply for Will, but wanting to kill everybody else around him that he cares for, just so that he can have him to himself. So it's, it's a, a multifaceted answer and question, I think. Hannibal can separate any two emotions from each other, so his pride and his empathy, he views them in their own little prisms, just like he does anger or fear or anything else. Well, fear, we can just cut that one out, but you get the idea. All right, well, uh, that'll wrap up the discussion then for this week's podcast. Uh, Once again, thank you to Randy Dankovich for coming on and talking with us. Is there anything going on online that you'd like to plug uh, for listeners? Not in particular. Everybody knows where to find me at this point. I'm writing. Find him. Seek him. Read him. Listen to him. You're all over the internet, though. Love me. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I'm not hard to find. uh, And Kate, you're also not hard to find after... How many episodes have we done now? Closing in on 40? So many. So many episodes. But once again, uh, where can the listeners get a hold of you and your work? 
Um, you can find me at Sound on Site, where I'm reviewing Hanvel and writing up the music every week, uh, the scoring every week. You can also uh, find me on Twitter at The Televerse. The Televerse is the TV podcast I co-host over at Sound on Site, covering the rest of TV. So, you know, check that out every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, um, for other fun TV shows, though not nearly as fun as Hannibal a lot of the times. Um, you can also find me uh, writing at the AV Club from time to time. Currently, I don't have any shows I'm reviewing there, but uh, yeah, Hannibal's keeping me plenty busy at the moment. But but yeah, you can drop me a line on Twitter because I, I always love talking about Hannibal or these other shows uh, that are currently, there's a lot of interesting TV on right now. Uh, so, so drop me a line there. Yeah, and you can uh, get my weekly reviews of Hannibal over at tvovermind.com and uh, just touching off of what you just said again thank you to the listeners who have been contributing and actually getting a hold of us on Twitter and through email I mean people who uh, sent us images who had you know no interest in entering the giveaway they just wanted to contribute to the ongoing discussion that is Brian Flores Hannibal we greatly appreciate that I know I love talking about it on Twitter as as often as I can so keep up the good work and even if we don't email back, or if we don't both email back, we both read all the emails. We both uh, send each other the different things you guys tweet at us. So uh, even if we don't get back to you immediately, know that we're reading uh, reading your emails, we're reading your comments at the website, and we are very grateful for them. So thank you guys for listening and sticking with us for so long. Yeah, to the bitter end. We're almost there. But we're not going to talk about that just yet. Next week, Kate and I will be back to talk about Season 3 Episodes 10 and the woman clothes in sun. But until then, uh, thank you listeners. You have been listening to another episode of This Is Our Design. Come on, come on, come on, come on, now touch me, babe. If you see that I am not afraid. What was that promise that you made? Why won't you tell me what she said? What was that promise that you made?